Let's pray. Oh, God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the opportunity to sing. We thank you for the opportunity to gather. And, and God, I thank you for the unique ways that we can be encouraged. Um, I thank you for the encouragement it is to hear brothers and sisters singing our faith to you and uh, just how that reinforces my faith, encourages me, strengthens me even to preach. Um, God, I, I thank you also for the unique opportunity that we have to be encouraged through your word proclaimed and your word preached. So God, I pray um, that you would prepare all of our hearts for that, that you would make us receptive, that you would allow us to focus, that you'd give us an attention span. Um, God, I pray for my mind that you would allow me to focus. And God, that you would lead, that you would guide, that you would redirect my words away from um, the weakness of what I've prepared and toward the beauty of what you've prepared in order to encourage us this morning. Amen. All right, so we are continuing this series called Resilient Church. And we're calling it that because we're looking at a church in Corinth that struggled and a letter that's written to them from an apostle named Paul who also struggled. And one of the reasons that he struggled is because uh, he had this ministry that God had given him, which inwardly and spiritually and in reality was incredibly powerful and incredibly fruitful, and God was at work within him and through him, and yet outwardly, his ministry looked like a complete failure. If you look at Paul's ministry up to this point, it seems like he's doing a better job of racking up beatings and bruises and wounds and the wrinkles of old age than he is of actually racking up any kind of success or fruitful ministry. It's been a really hard go. And so some of the people in Corinth, Corinth was a really large, really diverse city, and some of the people in that church, they're looking at Paul's ministry, and and frankly, they're looking at Paul's life. That he's this guy that every, every time they see him, he has more beatings and more bruises and another story about when he's been in prison. And they're like, you know, if, if, God, if God were with you, if God were blessing you, you'd probably be more handsome. And, and you, you'd, you'd probably have more outward success. You would probably be more impressive. And so Paul is coming to them and he's defending his ministry. He's saying, guys, that, that's not how it works. And there's this temptation that we have, too, to think that, you know, if, if we follow God, everything's going to go easily. Everything is going to go well. But Paul's saying that's not how it is. In, in fact, the reality that we see in Scripture, the reality that we see in the passage we're looking at today, the reality we see throughout Paul's ministry, the ministry of Jesus, the whole of Scripture, is that God is continually working through our suffering in order to accomplish his purposes. And it's not that God works in spite of our suffering. No, the suffering is the catalyst. It is through our suffering that God transforms us, and it's often through our suffering that God transforms the people in this world around us. As our lives are conformed to the image of Jesus, as we become like him, because remember the pattern that he laid out for us. Jesus came into a sin-cursed world and he suffered. He joined us in our suffering. He took suffering all the way to the cross and it was through that most desperate and evil and wicked act perpetrated on our Savior that we receive his grace and his blessing. Amen? 
So the pattern that we see in Scripture is that we also often see our most fruitful ministry, ministry to others, and we often see the most fruitful transformation in our own lives as God allows us to join with Jesus in his suffering for God's glory, for our transformation, and for the good of everyone around us. These are the patterns that we're exploring in the passage that we're looking at today. More than anything, Paul is answering the question, why? Why do you continue to be so bold? Why do you continue to be so confident? Why Why do you continue to be so encouraged to share the hope that you have even when life seems to be falling apart? And again, it's because he knows this pattern. He understands the paradox. He believes the promises, and so he is ready to persevere. And I hope, I hope that this feels relevant to you guys today. Um, for, for our family, many of you guys know, I got Luke's permission to share this. Many of you guys know he tore his ACL. And what that means is a lot of pain and a lot of waiting and a lot of frustration. It's, it's a knee injury that's going to take, it's going to involve a lot of pain, it's going to involve surgery, it's going to take the better part of a year to rehab. And that's hard. So in the midst of that, it's not just Luke that's asking the questions, it's his, his pastor dad. You know, that's asking the question, God, why do you allow your kid to tear his ACL? Why do you allow my kid to tear his ACL? I want this path to be easier. I want my Christian life, I want my son's Christian life to just be overflowing with blessings. I want it to be just just a smooth highway, 90 miles per hour, all the way to heaven. Really, really great. So it's got our whole family asking the question, God, how do you want to use this for your glory? This is not what we wanted. And as we look at the heart of our God, we understand that God did not design us to live in a sin-cursed world. But sin entered the world and death through sin and everything else, all of the decay, all of the destruction, all of the troubles and trials that go with death, ACL injuries entered the world through sin. Not Luke's sin. Not an individual's particular sin, no, but the sin of Adam and Eve, the sin that we continue. Death came into the world through sin. God did not design us for death. God did not design us for pain. And yet, we serve a God who redeems pain and who redeems suffering and who uses it for his glory. So whatever your trials and troubles are, you know, be it cancer or the pain of a breakup or, you know, delays of gratification and of career advancement and of vacations and whatever it is, whatever the trials are that you're struggling with, perhaps the trials of trying to share the gospel with others and seeing it go badly, feeling rejection, all of those things, these are the trials that God desires to use for his glory and for your good in order to transform you and through you to transform the world. That's what we're seeing in this passage today. All right. So basically, we're asking this question, God, why do we live in a world where you allow your children who you love to suffer, to grow old, to become frail, to become weak, to to lose our hair? You know, these are the questions that some of the guys are asking, like, God, why? 
why are you doing this? And again, there's, there's two answers. There's the big picture answer that I've also already gotten into a bit. That we live in a sin-cursed world. And there will be trials in this world. But Jesus came and he entered into our pain and he entered into our suffering in order to redeem our suffering. In order that through his suffering he would redeem our world. Okay, so that's, that's the big picture answer. But then the particular answer we're looking at in this passage. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the last few verses that we covered last week, through the first 10 verses of chapter 5. Big idea for today. The weakness, the frailty, and the suffering of this present march toward death, they are the means through which God works new life, both in us and in others. As we joyfully join him in suffering. And again, sometimes we're just going to suffer like everyone in this world is suffering, but sometimes we are going to suffer specifically to advance the gospel, to build the kingdom of God. And as you lean into that path, what what you're often going to find is that as you lay down your life in order that others might live, as you strategically sacrifice the path might feel harder than if you were not laying down your life to advance the gospel. You know? What, what we're called to, what we're invited to, is that we would pour out our very lives. For those of you who are young, that you would pour out your youth and expend it in order that people might know your God. And for those of you who are a little bit older, you're like, my youth is shot and my energy is shot, and you know what? This path has actually gotten harder as I've gotten older because that's how aging works. The call is that we would continue to pour out what we have left for the glory of God. Okay? And, and that, that is going to be hard. But the beauty of it is that, that even as we struggle, even as we suffer, even as life is hard, God is there with us in it. And he is encouraging us, and he is empowering us, and he is strengthening us, and he is changing us from the inside out for his glory and for our good, and hopefully for the good of everyone around us. So we see this whole thing. We're going to look at it unfolding in three phases. We're going to see the paradox, the promise, and the call to perseverance. First, the paradox. Um, Picking up where we left off at the end of last week's passage, at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, again, Paul defending this ministry that is outwardly unimpressive, racked up more scars than success stories, and yet he isn't discouraged by it. He doesn't grow more timid as he faces all of these obstacles and and all of these barriers. Instead, he seems to get more bold. So in the previous passage, he's explained, he's talked about his confidence in the resurrection and his thankfulness that that his suffering could be used to bring other people to God. Then he picks up in verse 16 saying, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we are wasting away. He's like, "I'm I'm not arguing with you about that. Yeah, you look at me, it's not impressive. He says, outwardly, we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, and that's the way he refers to it because he recognizes that whatever struggle we're dealing with today, you know, it's probably going to be measured in days or weeks or possibly years, but some amount of years less than a century. And he compares that to eternity. And he says, you know what? Our light and momentary troubles, he says, they are achieving for us. 
they're producing in us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So this paradox, it's all about perspective. He says, yeah, we're growing older. And as we grow older, you're right, we're growing weaker. You know, if, if he's like me, then he's one of these guys that, that, you know, kind of imagines that when he was in his 20s, he was kind of handsome, you know, and he's like, well, you had to be there, you had to see it. You know, I'm, I'm not super impressive now. Okay? Yeah, I've been pouring out my life. And frankly, the weariness of the aging process, it might be piling up a little bit faster in my life because of how hard I'm going to try to bring the gospel to other people. It's like, yeah, I, I wouldn't have that scar. I wouldn't have the stuff on my back. I wouldn't have any of that if I wasn't so committed to bringing the gospel to, to some people who don't even want to hear it. Outwardly, uses language from, from other scripture, we're being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice. But paradoxically, God is at work inwardly. And that work is simultaneously. He says, outwardly, we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. We are being encouraged. He's making our old hearts new. He's giving our old eyes new perspective to see. So instead of looking at our physical limitations and wallowing in self-pity, okay, in, instead of looking at our earthly accomplishments and asking, you know, have I accomplished enough? Am I impressive enough? Instead of fixating our, on our deteriorating physical bodies, he says we fix our eyes on Jesus and we experience his joy. You know, as we think about our suffering, as we think about our struggle, we, we, we turn our eyes to his struggle. And we recognize that all of his struggle was voluntary. He could have stayed in heaven, and it was a pretty good gig. But instead, he came to our neighborhood. He entered into humanity. He entered into our suffering. He entered into our pain. And he suffered in a way that none of us will ever suffer, voluntarily out of love for us in order that we might be redeemed. We fix our eyes on that gospel reality, and in that we find joy. Like, I'm feeling pretty lousy about my life today, but my God loves me that much? And that's pretty awesome. I'm feeling kind of discouraged about what I'm pouring into other people and what I'm getting back, and it doesn't, it doesn't seem quite fair. It seems like I'm giving more than I'm getting, but my God poured into me like that? You know what, I, I don't need to, to milk a little bit of encouragement out of you today. I can just offer the encouragement that he gives to me. He says we fix our eyes on Jesus and we receive joy from Jesus until our lives begin to become this kind of joy fountain that overflows into the lives of people around us. And that brings the gospel to others. And again, the craziest thing about this pattern, the crazy thing that makes it a paradox, is that, that God doesn't just work this glorious transformation in spite of suffering. Rather, he works it through suffering. It is our daily dying that produces the new life in us. Jesus said the, the, the guy who tries, who seeks to save his life, he's going to lose it. The self-centered life doesn't work. It is not satisfying. But he says, when we 
When we give up our lives, when we surrender our lives, when we say, you know what, I'm going to pour out my life for God's glory and for other people's good. He says, paradoxically, that's where we find life. That's where we find joy. He says, Jesus says, unless, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a seed. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it produces many seeds. That's just how God works. Verse 17, one more time. He says, it's the suffering itself, the outward wasting away itself, the trials and troubles themselves that are achieving for us, that are producing in us an eternal glory. It's our daily dying that produces new life, both in us and in others. That's the paradox. Next we see the promise. Verse 1 begins, now we know that. And it, it kind of feels as though he's moving on to a new topic, like he's, we're in a new chapter, he's changing gears. That's not really what's happening. What's, what's going on here is that we're not moving to a new but related idea, but rather Paul is elaborating on and applying the previous idea. In verse 18 he wrote, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And now in chapter 5 he's going to apply this seen versus unseen distinction to the decaying physical bodies that we see and the resurrected bodies that we don't see. Verse 1. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. He compares our bodies to a tent. It's, it's this temporary structure that's kind of flimsy. It's, it's easily torn down. It's, it's easily destroyed. Like, if you're having a little bit too much fun at the campsite, it's easy to stumble and trip in it and rip the whole thing apart, and it's done. Okay, it's flimsy. He, can, he compares our present bodies to a tent. But he compares our future resurrected bodies to a legitimate building a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. He says that's the future, that's the promise, that's the hope. We hope to one day be with Jesus and to have a body that's like his. And and Paul says that that hope is anchored in reality. Though our resurrected bodies are a future hope, he talks about them in the present tense. He says, now we know that if the earthly tent we, have, we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. Again, that building, it's a reference to a resurrected body. Anyone in the room have a resurrected body right now? Anyone have a body that's kind of like Wolverine, you know, from the Marvel stuff? Like, whenever I'm asked that question, like, what, what, what's the superpower that you want? It's, it's, it's a no-brainer, you know, like... Whatever Superman's got, it's nothing compared to Wolverine. He regenerates. Do anything. There's no kryptonite. It's amazing. We don't have this resurrected body. And yet Paul, Paul speaks about it as though we do. He says, now we know if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. Why does he refer to it in the present tense? Why does a dominant baseball team go into the first inning and say, we've got this game? They do it because of their confidence that is rooted in their pride. 
Paul does it because of his confidence that is rooted in God's promise. God has promised that when, we, when this earthly tent is worn out, he's giving us a substantial building that will not wear out. And because he promised it, it's as, even though it's in the future, it is as good as a present reality. It is as real as real can get. Because it is anchored in the promise of God. And he's already taught them about this promise in his previous book, so he can say, we know that this is true. This is shared knowledge that we have. So we hope in this future promise of a body that doesn't decay, of a body that is untouched by sin and death, but we live in the present. And the present is a lot harder than that. Verse 2. Meanwhile, what we set our hope on this future promise, meanwhile, we groan. Longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and we are burdened. But we do not wish to be unclothed, but be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, as a promise, guaranteeing what is to come. Now, Paul mixes his metaphors here. He's, he's gone from tents and buildings to like clothing and, and all of this stuff, but he's, he's talking about the same idea. The point is the same. He's basically saying that this body that we have, it's nice. It's at least okay. You know, again, some of us who are older, we look back nostalgically and we say, once it was awesome. Okay? And, and, and some who are, you know, older than me might be looking at me and saying, man, you've got no idea, you know, what is to come. Okay? Um, but, but he makes this comparison. And, and he, he basically says, as we get older, our body gets worn out. It's, it's kind of like this, this raggedy old jacket that I... I actually looked for and I found and I still have in my closet. So let me tell you the story of this jacket. A couple of decades ago, we were living in Dallas. And I don't know why I needed a jacket in Dallas at all because it's crazy there. But it was an extremely light jacket. It was a zip-up hoodie. It was maroon. It had two-tone gray stripes. It was, it was nice. I really liked it. Um, I don't think I wore it much in Dallas. It was probably for those like three cold days of the year or whatever. Then we moved to Little Rock and wear it a little bit more. And then a year later, we moved, we moved back to Michigan. And I mean, you need like a, a jacket in the summer or whatever. So that jacket, it was my favorite jacket, and it got worn out. Like, it doesn't really have cuffs. Like, you know, where the cuffs used to be, it's just like raggedy threads and whatnot. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's fine. Um, and, and like, I think it's the right elbow where it's just, it's just worn through. And there wasn't like some big incident. It wasn't that I was, um, reliving my glory days and playing flag football. And, you know, like I, I tore through, no, it's just, it's just really old. And if it gets that old, it's just kind of paper thin and it falls through. Um, but I don't want anybody to take away my jacket, right? Um, Jess has probably bought me three, four jackets since then. The, the most recent one, I really like it. It's, it like might replace this jacket. Now that I'm actually bringing news that this jacket that I looked for last night is still in the back of my closet, Jess or Chloe's probably going to burn this jacket. Um, it's, it's not fine. It's not, I'm telling you it's fine because that sounds like the right answer, but it's not fine. It's my jacket. I'm attached to my jacket. And that's, that's how Paul says it is. 
He's like, your body, it's, it's raggedy, and it's wearing out, and it's unimpressive, and you got, and you got something better coming. And you know, he, he's like, if you more aggressively pour out your, your life and this physical body for the glory of God, that is not a bad deal for you, because God has a jacket replacement policy, and he's getting you a new jacket that's a whole lot better than that raggedy old maroon jacket with holes and, and, and threads that are going everywhere, Okay? But we get sentimentally attached to the jacket. We're like, I don't want to lay down my life. I don't want to do something hard. I don't want to tire myself out today. I need my beauty sleep. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to get old faster. I don't want to be wrinkly like Shannon. That'd be terrible. That was funny. So, <laughs> you guys don't? All right? We've got this sentimental attachment to our lives, to our physical bodies, and God's like, I am taking care of you. The retirement plan is good. The jacket replacement plan is great. So go. Pour yourself out. It'll be fine. What's the worst that can happen? You die? We're not rushing toward death. We don't want death for death's sake, and that's fine. For all of its brokenness, for all of the hardships of a fallen world, it is still a good and beautiful life that we live in. We want to cherish the joy and the blessing that God gives us in it. But let's not think that this raggedy old maroon jacket life that we're living now begins to compare to what God offers us later. Amen? Let's not set our hope here. He says, you know what? We don't want to be unclothed. We don't want to be found naked. We don't want to be without any jacket. But God, God is looking to give us a better jacket. And he points forward to this day when what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. And he says, I long for this day when what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. What is mortal? What is decaying? What, what, what is subject to the ravages of a sin-cursed world? When all of that will be swallowed up by life. Now, here's the oddity of this statement. It's, it's usually actually life that's swallowed up by death. You know, it's, it's the ripe and beautiful strawberry that if, you, if you're a fool and you, you, you leave it out too long, that it eventually rots. You know, it's, it's the youthful body that grows old and decays. It's, it's, the, it's the spring plants that grow throughout the summer that the Michigan fall and winter come and they decay and they die and they go dormant. It's usually mortality that we see swallowing up life in this world, but God points to a reversal. And Paul, by the Holy Spirit, he points to a a reversal when what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. 2,800 years ago, the prophet Isaiah wrote the verse that Paul is alluding to here. It's um, it's Isaiah uh, 25, verse 8. I won't quote it exactly. But Isaiah spoke of the day. When the Lord Almighty, when he will wipe away every tear and he will swallow up death forever, death will be swallowed up by life. Verse 5. Now it is God who made us for this very purpose. This purpose of reflecting his glory, this purpose of reflecting the gospel, this purpose of reflecting the paradox, this purpose of being people who, who, who though our, our bodies are in decay, are being renewed with new life. 
These, these people who inwardly now and even externally later will see that our mortality is swallowed up by life. It is God who made us for this very purpose. And he has given us the Spirit as a deposit, as a promise that's guaranteeing that he is going to bring this to fruition. He gave us the Spirit as a promise guaranteeing what is to come. So first we see this paradox. That it's our daily dying that actually produces new life both in us and in in others. And second, we see the promise. That when this body is worn out and spent and torn down like a tent, that God will replace it with an eternal and indestructible body, a body like the resurrected body of Jesus. And finally, he calls us to perseverance. Perseverance in sharing the hope that we have not because we have to share it and, and not because we have to persevere in laying down our lives in order that others might live, but he calls us to persevere because it's the logical outcome of the hope that we have, right? If, God, if as soon as you wear out this ridiculous, raggedy old jacket, God is giving you a really nice coat, then let's get after it. Let's persevere. Let's go hard. It's, it's, it's not a burdensome thing. It's not an ought to. It's not a have to. It's an opportunity that he lays before us. He says in verse 6, Therefore we are always confident. Other translations might say we are always bold because we are always rooted in the hope of the gospel. And we know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. As long as we're comfortable in this world, as long as our greatest hopes and our greatest delights and our greatest longings are anchored in this world, as long as our eyes are fixed on the things that we can enjoy in this world, we're missing the opportunity to fix our eyes on Jesus. In a certain sense, we are standing apart from Jesus and saying, you know what? It may be raggedy, but this is my coat and I love it and... and and I don't know about that future code. I haven't seen it yet. I'm, I'm not sure if that's it. It says, that as long as we're at home in our rags and just cherishing our rags, and, and by all means, be thankful for your raggedy old coat. I am, and I hope that my wife doesn't destroy it. But as long as we're so enamored with our rags, we're, we're not moving on to something more glorious. Therefore, we are always confident and we know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We don't want that. We want to treasure Jesus. So, so, so he, he gives this mantra, this cry, this, this way that he lives and that he's calling us to live. He says, we live by faith, not by sight. We live by faith, not by sight. We fix our eyes on what is unseen. We live in a world where our five senses are continually bombarded. And whatever input we get from our five senses, we filter that through our emotions and we, and we make these very tangible decisions. Okay, he says, as, as men and women who walk by faith, that's not how we live. We're not primarily dependent on sensory input and our emotional reactions to it. No, we fix our eyes on Jesus. The input for our lives' decisions is the promises of God. That's what we look to. That's what we hope in. That's what we trust in. That is our basis. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is seen is raggedy and ridiculous. But, but what is unseen is eternal, and it is 
glorious. He continues in verse 8, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We'd prefer to trade our rags for a resurrected body. We would prefer to trade all of God's good gifts, a family and friends and the Cubs beating the Cardinals all series long. And say, Sorry, guys. Um, that we'd prefer to, to trade all of that to be in the presence of God forever. Now, this is kind of weird. Like, he's saying that, and I think he really believes that. But, but many of us, you know, we kind of look at our current lives, and those of us who are parents, and we're kind of waiting for that next stage. You know, we want to we see our kids walk, or we want to see our kids talk, or we want to see our kids get out of diapers. That'd be amazing. Or, you know, we, we want to see our kids do well in sports, or we want to see them graduate, or we want to see them go to college. or You know, whatever our seasons of life, that's how it is for a parent. I get that because I'm living that. Frankly, if we're being honest, it's... We can't every day, every moment say, I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's short-sighted of us. That's kind of foolish of us. It's, it reflects a lack of faith. But frankly, it also reflects that even in a sin-cursed world, our God is so good that, that even this pale reflection of the good that he made us for is so good that we want to hold on to it. That's beautiful. That's, that's nice. Okay, but, but he's inviting us into a different perspective. He's inviting us into a, a perspective that corresponds better to reality, that just recognizes that, that he's got something better for us than this raggedy and ridiculous life. That's not saying that we're going to take our own lives. It's not saying that, that, that we're going to throw away the gift that this life is. But it's an invitation to steward the gift that this life is. You know, to not cling to it as though if this is taken away, then all is lost. But to say, no, this, this is great, and I'm going to have fun, and, and I'm going to enjoy it. Um, but I'm also just going to pour it out, because when the, the sooner this life is over, the, the sooner I'm enjoying a better life with my Savior. We are confident of saying we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Verse 9. The logical conclusion of all of this, he says, so we make it our goal to please him. Whether we're at home in the body or away from it. Whether we're, you know, in, enjoying lemonade on the back patio and great conversations with good friends and, and all of that stuff. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it, we make it our goal to please the Lord. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. He says, we make it our goal to persevere in laying down our lives so that others might live. Um, he's been talking about the beauty of God's grace. He's been talking about the paradox of how he works life out of death and the promise that he'll raise us from the dead. And finally, he's been calling us to persevere because of this hope. So if you have a Bible in front of you, and you know, if you don't, that's, that's fine, but you can even open up your apps in the future. Don't even bother today. To me, as I read through this verse, this passage, and I saw how it concluded, it, it seemed really odd to me that he concludes this section with a reference um, to God's judgment. Again, he says, 
Um, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done well in the body, whether good or bad. And it was, it was just, it was confusing to me. It was disconcerting to me. I didn't understand the logical flow, like why this reference to judgment, it, it seems disconnected and out of the blue. At first glance, it really felt like a fear-based motivation strategy, which really isn't the way that Paul tends to roll. It, it seemed like this fear-based thing, hey, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of God, so you better persevere. But if that's the case, like, what exactly is, is Paul trying to motivate them to do? Is he trying to scare them into walking by faith? Or, like, scare them into hoping in Jesus? Or scare them into longing for heaven? more than earth, because just kind of thinking it through, I don't think you can scare people into that. I don't think you can scare people into hoping in Jesus or, or, or walking by faith or any of that stuff. So why this reference to judgment? Again, it goes back to the broader context. Paul has been defending his ministry. He's, he's pushing back against the people who are standing in judgment against him, who are saying, you know what, a suffering apostle is no apostle at all. I see your bruises, I see your, your scars, I see how many people have rejected you, I see how many, people you've been, how many times you've been thrown in a Roman prison. You're not blessed by God, you're a joke, you're a clown. A suffering apostle is no apostle at all. We want leaders who are more impressive than you. And what does Paul say to that? Verse 9, he says, my goal, our goal as people who follow Jesus is to please him. It's not to please you. He says, my goal is to please Jesus. It's not to impress any of you. Paul says, the fact that you guys aren't very impressed with my ministry, no problem. Because you and I, we're going we're gonna to stand before Jesus and we're going to give an account to him. It's, it's his approval that I'm working for. It's his approval that I'm longing for. And by the grace of God, Paul knows that he has that approval. It's not explicit in this text, but man, is it explicit throughout his writing and throughout Scripture. That this is not a merit-based endeavor, but no, we have received God's grace. And whether we are at home in the body or away from it, whether we're enjoying God's blessings in this world or whether we are struggling and suffering and longing for a better world with a better body and a a closer connection to God, either way, we make it our goal to please him because he is the only judge that matters. And he is a good and gracious judge. He is a good and gracious judge who is so gracious and so just and so holy that, that he insisted that sin be dealt with that sin be punished, but he loved us so much that he said, I'm going to step in your place and I am going to take your punishment on my back on the cross. That is our judge who we live to please. Because he is good and because he has been gracious to us and because we can trust his promises and hope that this paradoxical thing of laying down our lives will result in new life, because we can trust in that, We continue to joyfully persevere, amen? Not a have to, not an ought to, but man, this just makes sense if my God is really this good, amen? All right, let's pray and then let's sing about that. Lord, we just come to you again and we thank you for your grace. And again, I thank you that in the next 10 minutes or so, I get to hear my brothers and sisters sing the truth of your grace Back to you and within my earshot that I can be encouraged to. Lord, we thank you for it. Amen.